Thank you. Children may be dismissed to junior church at this time, so you may make your way to junior church. I'm going to look at a few other passages really quickly before we get to our main passage, because sometimes through the worship service, different things come to mind, and we have to, myself and the worship leaders, uh, not just me, kind of think through, uh, does this make sense, that it could be from the Holy Spirit to share it? And, you know, I, I don't know if you realize we are called to be thankful, even commanded to be thankful. And Romans chapter 1 gets into this litany of, 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 of things, that of sins that Gentiles will get into. And in verse 21 of Romans chapter 1, it says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him. They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile and their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice how it says there, they did not honor him as God and they did not give thanks. And some have said that, you know, when, when we forget to be thankful, that's when a whole bunch of other things go, go away, go awry. I'll use that word awry. We forget to be thankful. We're called to be thankful. And 1 Thessalonians five sixteen says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We were in Sunday school and I referenced proper interpretive methods of the Bible. Um, It's called hermeneutics, really. Hermeneutics, the science of interpreting the Bible. It's very, very, very important. We need to interpret the Bible rightly and naturally. And sometimes we misapply passages because we forget the three most important words of Bible interpretation. Context, context, context. And one of those passages is Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, and so on and so forth. And we apply that to ourselves when in context, that's about the 70-year captivity of Israel and Babylon. And so someone asked rightfully, what about, what about passages, though, um, that, that apply to us and promises of God to us. Guess what? You'll see Jeremiah 29, 11 on many different things. I taught Mercedes, my daughter, about that. And we were in my office. She said, oh, dad, that cross has that passage on it. It's used wrong. I said, you know what? You're right. And that's been in my office for like 11 years. Good catch, Mercedes. We're going to have to do something. You know, if we respect the Bible, if we love the word of God, then we want to interpret it correctly and apply it correctly. Now, in context, Jeremiah 29 applies a lot to us. We can take a lot of applications right there. The 70-year captivity of Israel, we see God's faithfulness. God brings them back to captivity. What other tribal people group has been conquered and continue to come back and exist? Israel was reestablished as a nation again in 1948. There's a lot of applications there. Anyways, Romans 8.28 is a powerful passage. It does apply directly to us. Romans 8.28. Just a few passages from Romans 1 that, you know, I had just shared. Romans 8.28. That says, and we know that God causes all things, not some things, all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For the Christian, now this is for those who love God. If you don't love God, this doesn't apply to you. Now, I would encourage you to love God and worship him and honor him. And and if you don't know him, commit your life to him. But if you love God, this is a promise for you. For we know that God causes, God actually causes all things to work together for good. 
Now, in reality, for the Christian, for those who love God, there's no bad things. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, A, there's no good people. But B, for Christians, for the Christian, there are no bad things. It's just our perspective. They, from our limited perspective, this side of eternity, it appears to be a bad thing. But this says God causes, God takes that thing that appears to be a bad thing and, and God causes it to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purposes. Maybe we need to pray. I need to pray. God, open my eyes. Help me to see the good here because sometimes it's very difficult and maybe we won't see it till the end, but this is a promise for us. So we're called to be thankful and we can cling to these promises of God. We can pray these promises of God. It's awesome, Romans 8, 831. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a promise for you and me. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is the greatest. He's the greatest of all. He is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Alpha Omega, beginning and the end. He's outside of time. He's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. And if he is for us, what does it matter if someone else is against us? It says... Um, in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him, up, uh, gave him up for us all. God did the greater thing. He did not spare his own son. That's the greatest thing of all. Men, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This is a, that's a powerful passage. I want to preach on that, but I already did about a year ago. So we're going to go to Genesis chapter uh, 10 in a minute. Genesis chapter 10. And I have a song uh, to start with, it's called Imagine, and you'll n- know it a little bit. But before I do that, I want to come back. I've called this sermon series Foundations, and we're almost done with the series, and maybe some of you will be happy about that, maybe some not. I don't know. You can keep your opinions to yourself, but uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But why does this matter? I was trying to make the case that Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are foundational to the Bible, More than that, they're foundational to life in general. There's a show that we started watching last night. I I had to subscribe to the Daily Wire for a bit to get it. Um, But I saw little snippets of it on Facebook and YouTube and other things. And uh, it's called What is a Woman? And Matt Walsh, I think, is his name. And he goes around and interviews different psychologists and doctors, doctors that do things like transgender therapy and things like that. And he'll ask them. And he just kind of lets them talk. And if you just listen to what they say, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever at all. But then he goes and interviews somebody who owns a store. And and he put a sign on the store about um, man and woman. It's just very common sense and actually kind of derogatory. Uh, but if you listen to the guy without the degrees, he sounds like he makes more sense than the, de- than the guy with the letters behind his name. And I don't know if you heard, we, there was something about that, e- even this past week in the, in the news media, something that happened with a U.S. senator questioning a Berkeley Law professor. And I don't share this to get into any political thing. Um, some have said all politics is local. Some would say politics is downstream from culture. In other ways, it, in other words, culture is going a certain way and the politics is downstream. Though I think with some of these things, including abortion and including the transgender stuff, it's, it's actually not following culture. I think culture is really against how far this has been pushed. And I think we're going to continue to see that. But it doesn't make sense. 
In Genesis chapters 1 through 11, in our Bibles, have answers about male and female. We preached on that. We get into the creation of woman. In Genesis chapter 2, God created male and female. We're watching the show, What is a Woman? And we didn't watch it all, but Megan said, where are the biologists? You know, why aren't the biologists speaking out on some of this stuff? Uh, Dr. Al Mohler, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote in World Opinions, he wrote, hearings before legislative committees are usually as boring as sawdust. Then again, every once in a while, one can lead to a moment of explosive revelation. That is exactly what happened yesterday when a witness before the U.S. Senate Committee on the Judiciary went after Senator Josh, Har- uh, Josh Hawley over who can and cannot become pregnant. In an exchange that went almost instantly viral, Senator Hawley asked Kiera M. Bridges, who teaches law at the University of California, Berkeley, about references in her testimony to people with the capacity for becoming pregnant. Would that be women, the senator asked. The law professor responded, uh, many women, cis women, have the capacity for pregnancy. Many cis women do not have the capacity for pregnancy. There are also trans women, no, I'm sorry, there are also trans men who are capable of pregnancy, as well as non-binary people who are capable of pregnancy. Now, as I've said, we have to go no further than Genesis chapters 1 through 11 to get answers about this. We can just open our Bibles and see about who, who has the capacity for pregnancy. So undeterred, Senator Hawley soldiered on through the ideological thicket. So he said, so this isn't really a women's right issue. Women's rights issue. Professor Bridges retorted that this issue impacts women, but that it also impacts other groups. Condescendingly, she added, those things are not mutually exclusive, Senator Hawley. Just seconds later, the law professor laid her ideological cards on the table as she addressed the senator. I want to recognize that your line of questioning is transphobic, and it opens up trans people to violence by not recognizing them. That's what she said to the senator. The senator rejected the suggestion that an assertion of biological fact could lead to violence. Then came the crystallizing moment. The witness turned to ask the senator a question. Do you believe that men can get pregnant? With brevity, uncommon to U.S. senators, Holly answered, No, I don't think men can get pregnant. Bridges then declared, So you are denying that trans people exist. There was more to the exchange, and there's a little bit more to this article, including that just a few years ago, just a few years ago, if you read the writings of the law professor from Berkeley, when she referred to pregnant people, she preferred to pregnant women. She referred to pregnant women. So just in a few years, her own things have changed. Certainly, our opinions change on various things, but this is why Genesis chapters 1 through 11, and for that matter, the whole Bible matters. We really do learn the basics and the most fundamental, important things about life in the scriptures, and we do not want to compromise them. We do not change the word of God and change the Bible based off of a cultural movement or anything else. Not at all. There's a song, Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. 
Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. Uh, you may recognize that song as written by John Lennon. Uh, Dr. Adelnik, who teaches Jewish studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute, wrote the following about that song. John Lennon released his greatest hit song, Imagine. It was the best-selling single of his solo career, one that Rolling Stone described as his greatest musical gift to the world. They called it 22 lines of graceful, plain-spoken faith in the power of a world united in purpose to repair and change itself. The song was designed to imagine a completely unified world, one without borders between nations or religions to divide us. It was a utopian vision of peace and love without God or Jesus. Imagine everyone in the world just holding hands and singing Kumbaya. It could have been written by Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. And John Lennon understood exactly what he was writing. In uh, Geoffrey Giuliano's 2000 biography of Lenin, uh, biography titled Lenin in America, Lennon is quoted as describing the song as anti-religious, anti-nationalistic, anti-conventional, anti-capitalistic, but because it is sugar-coated, it is accepted. In another interview, Lennon said that Imagine is virtually the communist manifesto in song. Let's think about some of the lyrics. This is uh, from Dr. Adelnik. Imagine there's no heaven, so no promise of peace or comfort for Jesus' followers who have endured so much pain in the world. No hell below us, so there's no assurance of judgment for the wicked. Hitler, Mao, and Stalin will never stand before God's judgment seat to receive justice for their crimes. Imagine all the people living for today. So no living in light of eternity, looking for the return of Jesus. Since no one would have hope, no one would seek to live pure lives. It says, imagine there's no countries ignoring that God himself established the 70 nations and chose one nation, Israel, to be a kingdom of priests, to mediate the knowledge of God to all the nations. And that's the passage we're going to get at here in just a moment. Genesis 10. Imagine goes on to say nothing to kill or die for, no religion to, ignoring that this has been tried. This same kind of communist and atheist vision led to Stalin's murder of 40 million people and Mayo's cultural revolution, killing 60 million people. Dr. Adelnik's article on that song and contrasting it with the biblical worldview continued, and uh, you can um, see it in the footnotes if you want to look up that link, or I'm going to share more about it in a bit. But why do I begin the message this way? I begin this way because in Genesis 10, we see people, many of them. In Genesis 10, we see people, and we see God establish 70 nations in Genesis chapter 10. We see Noah's descendants multiply, and I continue to try to emphasize that these texts, these chapters, are foundational to the Bible. Genesis 10 is setting us up for Abraham, and Abram is setting things up for the Messiah, Jesus, and it goes all the way through the rest of the Bible. This is foundational to the Bible, and just like I shared uh, regarding even the idea of what is a woman and all the stuff going around the culture right now, Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are foundational to the scriptures and foundational to life in general. So my theme today 
In God's faithfulness, Noah's family multiplies. In God's faithfulness, Noah's family multiplies. Read with me Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, Genesis chapter 10, verse 1 is page number 7 in the Pew Bible. Page 7 in the Pew Bible, but you can follow along in the sermon manuscript or in um, your own Bible or your phone or tablet. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So what are we getting at right here in Genesis 10? We're going to see Noah's descendants multiply. And then verse two, uh, 32. Turn uh, to verse 32. Genesis chapter 10, verse 32. Now it says, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So we see the beginning of Genesis chapter 10 introing, introing this long list of descendants, the genealogy, the descendants of Noah. And then at the very end of chapter 10, these are the clans of the sons of Noah. That's what he's been writing about, the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. And we will see this come up again in the book of Acts later on. God is, is, is being faithful to his people. So why this genealogy? In Genesis chapter 10, we see a total of 70, 70 descendants in the family line of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Seventy descendants in the family line of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, why do we need to see all these names? Why? I'm sure that if you're in a Bible reading plan, you, like many, sometimes just kind of skim over the list of names or maybe think, oh, good, a short chapter. I'm just going to skip that part. But there's nuggets of truth in these genealogies, which I want to talk about for a moment. Why do we need these list of names? In this genealogy, we see that Noah's family was faithful, obeying the Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, command to be fruitful and multiply. You know that? In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, God told Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Uh, Noah is a vice regent ruling over the earth, just like Adam and Eve were, and Adam and Eve Previously, at the end of Genesis 1, we're also told, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, now that was especially a command for then, though it still applies a little bit today. They were called to have children. They were called to fill the earth. And this genealogy is showing God was faithful and they were obedient. They, they were obedient. We see that God was faithful in providing children to them. All throughout the Bible and even today, we see that God is the author of life. God is in charge of the womb. And guess what? Children are not a curse. They are a blessing from the Lord. Part of the worldview of the culture, just like we heard in that senator exchange, but we also see repeatedly as children are a burden, not a blessing. We can get answers about that in Genesis as well, by the way. The flood has happened and almost all of the world's population has been killed. And yet God is giving a fresh start. God is giving a fresh start. 
the CSB uh, Bible shares 70. We see 70 in this, in this chapter. 70, a multiple of two numbers that suggest completeness. Seven is the number of days of a creation week. 10 is the number of fingers. And that 70, number of completeness, would have suggested to ancient Israelites a satisfying completeness to the quantity of persons and nations that came into being after the flood. This is labeled a list of clans, languages, nations, and lands. Thus, some of the names refer to the regions where the person's descendants settled. Some refer to people groups. If you have a good study Bible, the ESV study Bible is phenomenal. There's a very, very good color map showing how people migrated. And this is, once again, answers in Genesis. They give answers for the rest of the Bible, even today. God is providing a way for them to repopulate the earth. In this genealogy, we also see how the curse on Canaan will be carried out. The CSB shares, this passage distinguishes the unchosen lines of Noah's descendants, which would be the Jephthites and the Hamites, from the line that, from the line of Noah's, uh, from the line that would be both the recipient and the agent of God's blessing to the rest of humanity. The Shemites would be the agent of God's blessing to the rest of humanity. The Shemites would lead to the Israelites. The Israelites would lead to Messiah Jesus. The Messiah Jesus is the savior of the whole world. So in this genealogy, we do see the distinguishing of the chosen versus the unchosen. The Moody Bible Commentary shares, the genealogies indicate the fulfillment of Noah's declarative statement in Genesis 9, 25 through 27, that the Shemites would subjugate the Canaanites as related later in Genesis chapter 14. This in turn reinforces both the divine imperative as well as the historical precedent for the Israelites. Likewise, descendants of Shem to do the same. As we read through Genesis, and as God inspired Moses to write Genesis, when Moses was inspired to write Genesis, the people of Israel were wandering around in the wilderness for about 40 years, wandering around. They, they should have been able to make it way quicker, but they were grumbling and complaining. And so God punished them and said, you're going to wander around. I've never given my kids that firm of a punishment, but God had his purposes. But grumbling and complaining made the Israelites lost in the wilderness. And during that time, God inspires Moses to write the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And in Genesis, the Israelites are reading about the land they're about to go and take possession of. And they may ask their parents, because a lot of times parents were the main teachers then, and we still ought to be the main primary teachers and checking up on what our kids are learning at school and so on and so forth. And when they ask their parents, why, why are we going in to take the land? Why are we doing this? The parents could respond by going back to Genesis. And they could look at this passage and look at the curse in the previous chapter. And then they could go to Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, the sins of the Amorites are not complete. In other words, for 400 years, God was giving the people of that area of Canaan, the Amorites, opportunities to repent. And they didn't repent. And they had temple prostitution and child sacrifice and pedophilia and all this type of stuff. And they were oppressed by Egypt. And God sent the Israelites in as liberators to the promised land. And those answers, those answers are right here in Genesis. So next time you read Genesis, and I pray that you do, remind yourself, think 
Think of this as if you're reading this like a child of Israel, like an Israelite child going into the promised land. And you're learning about the people groups and geography and God's promises to Israel before you go and enter the promised land. The descendants of Shem would lead to Abraham and lead to Israel. We see that in the next chapter, Genesis 11. So we see the people multiply. We see the curse on Canaan carried out. We also, in this genealogy, we see how the various people groups develop. We see a history of culture, a history of people and how they would develop. But why genealogies in general? I want to talk about that for just a moment. Why? There's, there's lots of genealogies. Why do they matter in general? In genealogies, we see God's faithfulness. We see how God provides. Every time we read a genealogy in the Bible, we see how God has carried out his plan in that people group. Every time you read a genealogy. I know the names might seem boring to you. You know what? There's a lot of good brain science going on out there, and there's good things that happen in your brain when you're bored. I keep telling that to my kids, and it doesn't seem to matter to them. But say so I'm bored. Well, that's a good thing then. Okay. Um, there's good things that go on, but you might be bored with them. But we see God's faithfulness in the genealogy. Have any of you gotten, like, studied your own family genealogy? Show of hands. Any of you done that? At least one of you, two of you, a few of you, three, four, five. You know, I served under a pastor when I was in Cincinnati. I was associate pastor. And for Christmas once, his family gave him a genealogy thing. And in the Civil War, he had a relative that served in the Civil War, and he in the genealogy, his name showed up as Chicken and then his last name. Chicken, and I won't share his last name publicly, but Chicken. And it, probably because maybe he deserted the troops in the Civil War or something. And he pointed out to his family line, to him and to his family, each of those names meant something. And when we do our own genealogical survey or we look at our grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents' history, those names have a lot of value. And that's the case with the Israelites. But we also see God's faithfulness. We see that in, in, cha- in First Chronicles chapters 1 through 10, we see God's faithfulness to the people of Israel. In Nehemiah chapters 11 through 12, we read about God being faithful to his people after the captivity. It's amazing. This is God's faithfulness. In genealogies, we see important people that many times show up in other places in the Bible. In genealogies, we see that, that this is real history. It's not fiction. You realize this is real history. It is not fiction. As you read the people's names, you read about real people who walked this planet. In genealogies, we see the detail-oriented nature of God and his interest in individuals. The detail-oriented nature of God and his interest in individuals. In genealogies, we see prophecy confirmed. Prophecy is confirmed. God has said many things, and guess what? He is faithful they could trust him, and we can trust him. Let me make some applications in review. First, praise God for his faithfulness. Praise God for his faithfulness. I'm going through a book titled Ordering Your Private World. It's a book that's required for the C.S. Lewis Institute Fellows Program. It's been written and revised a number of times. And it talks about certain spiritual disciplines and there's an interesting section on silence. How many times do you, do we, do I, how many times do we practice a discipline of silence? He writes in the book, it's interesting that God's angel used silence 
to curb the impossible thinking of aged Zacharias when told that he and his wife were to become the parents of John the baptizer. If Zacharias could not accept the promise of God as it had come to him, then his tongue would be stilled for several months and he could think about it. When Elizabeth, his wife, on the other hand, realized what was happening, she withdrew. The scripture says, partially because that was the custom of pregnant women, but also, I believe, because she needed to mediate, she needed to meditate, to meditate on the strange and mysterious things that were happening. Then there was Mary, the mother of Jesus, who when she learned of her role in the birth of our Lord, did not blurt out all of God's plans, but chose silence. Luke 2.19, Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Christ's coming was heralded not only by singing in praise from angels, but also by silence from human partners who needed solitude in order to think through and appreciate the wonder. Wayne Oates tells us, silence is not native to my world. Silence more than likely is a stranger to your world too. If you and I ever have silence in our noisy hearts, we are going to have to grow it. We're going to have to grow it. You can nurture silence in your noisy heart if you value it, cherish it, and are eager to nourish it. And then the writer goes on to say, silence and solitude are not easy to me as well. You know, we need silence. Be still and know the Lord is God. In Isaiah, no, Psalm 4610, it says, be still and know that I'm God. And sometimes that passage is used incorrectly. It's actually speaking to the pagan nations around Israel, reminding them the Lord is God. Be still and know that he is God. As you look at this passage right here, as you look at this genealogy, praise and worship the Lord. Give yourself quiet time and daily devotion time to praise God, to be silent before him, realizing how amazing he is. He is amazing. Nations spread out. God is repopulating the earth. We see God's plans come to pass. This passage correlates with Acts 17.26. In Acts 17.26, Paul shared, And he, that's God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place. If we mess with Genesis chapter 10, We're messing with other parts of the Bible because right there in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, the apostle Paul is referring back to Genesis chapter 10. These passages of scripture are foundational to our Bible. In this genealogy, we are seeing things set up for the people of Israel at the end of Genesis 11. Through the people of Israel, we will have salvation through Jesus. Notice how this genealogy leads to Abraham, which leads to Israel, which leads to the Savior. Genesis 10 is connecting Noah to Abraham, who will appear in the very next chapter. Abraham connects to the rest of the scriptures. Certainly much more could be shared about this chapter. And if interested, and I'm sure all of you are eager to do this, you can go to our church website and for a small fee, no, I'm just kidding about the fee part. You can go to um, resources and you can go to my Sunday school notes and I have like 30 pages of notes on this chapter under Sunday School Genesis 10 if you wanna read more about it. I encourage you, when you read the genealogies, notice God's faithfulness. When you, read, when you read the genealogies, notice God's faithfulness. And respond in silence, respond in song, respond in prayer, respond in worship. I began this message. Actually, I want to read something else first. In ordering your private world, 
There's a story. Howard Rutledge, a United States Air Force pilot, was shot down over North Vietnam during the early stages of the war. He spent several miserable years in the hands of his captors being, uh, before being released at the war's conclusion. The writer here says, I have Rutledge's book in the presence of mine enemies in my library. Though many years old, it is, it is a favorite. I appreciate Rutledge's openness in describing the inner, the inner resources or lack, or lack of them from which he drew in those arduous days when life seems so intolerable. This is what Rutledge writes. He says, during those longer periods of enforced reflection, it became so much easier to separate the important from the trivial, the worthwhile from the waste. Do you ever separate the importance, the important from the trivial, the worthwhile from the waste? For example, in the past, I usually worked or played hard on Sundays and had no time for church. For years, Phyllis, his wife, had encouraged, he writes, encouraged me to join the family at church. She never nagged or scolded. She just kept hoping. But I was too busy, too preoccupied to spend one or two short hours a week thinking about the really important things. Now, the sights and sounds and smells of death were all around me. Now he's in a POW camp in Vietnam, thinking back about how he played hard instead of going to church on Sundays. He says, my hunger for spiritual food soon outdid my hunger for a steak. Now I wanted to know about that part of me that will never die. Now I wanted to talk about God and Christ in the church. But in Heartbreak, which is the name of the name POWs gave their prison camp, solitary confinement, there was no pastor, no Sunday school teacher, no Bible, no hymn book, no community of believers to guide and sustain me. I had completely neglected the spiritual dimension of my life. It took prison to show me how empty life is without God. Does that stir any of us? How empty life would be without God. 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give an answer of the hope that is within us, but do so with gentleness and respect, which actually first says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Are we pursuing God, trying to make Jesus Lord of our hearts? And is he our hope? What's our hope? Is there, is there hope in the entertainment? Is there hope in the toys we have, even adult toys? Is there hope in our materialistic things or is there hope in God? If something happened in next week, in the week after, in the week after, in the week after, in the week after, you couldn't be at church. You're in isolation at some type of a POW camp or the church goes underground because of persecution. Are you going to miss it? Yes. Where are you at? Praise God. I began this message with Dr. Radonik's comments on the song Imagine. This is how he concludes his article. He says, so the next time you're in the grocery store and the ever-present music comes on playing Imagine, instead of humming along with it, maybe we should all start singing I Can Only Imagine instead. 
I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes would see when your face is before me. I can only imagine, surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or will, in awe, in awe of you, will I be still? He goes on. There's a lot of people in this chapter. God multiplied the people and eventually sent a savior to save us all from our sins. Do you know him? Are you living for him? Are you surrendered to him? Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I thank you for the promises of your word. The promises I began this message with. The promises here being fulfilled in Genesis 10. You told Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply. And you allowed that to happen. You allowed that to happen. You could have cut off the future right then and you did not. You are faithful, Lord Jesus. You are faithful. And I pray, Lord God, as that hymn going through my head this morning. I pray, Lord God, that we all can say on Christ, a solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. May that be true of all of us. And Lord God, if there's anyone here today, or maybe listening at home, and they hear that story of the Vietnam POW, or maybe they hear other parts of this message and they think, I've strayed from the gospel. I've strayed from Jesus. Jesus is not my hope. My hope is in material things or work or other things. Lord God, I pray that they would respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction and today would be the day to surrender to you, to surrender and confess they are a sinner in need of a savior. Believe in you as the one and only savior. Trust in you and commit to you to firmly make the decision to be with you in order to become like you, to learn and do all that you say and arrange their affairs around you, to firmly, seriously make the decision to be with you. Lord, we want to live with you. In order to become like you, become like you, King Jesus. Learn and do all that you say, which we have in the promises in your word, and arrange their affairs around you. Lord God, I pray that perpetually we are all pursuing making you Lord of our life. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As always, I want to share, if you have questions about God or the spiritual life, talk to me. I'd love to help you. I would love to, even if you're antagonistic with Christian faith, but you have questions you want answered, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. The altars are open. If God has laid anything on your heart, it could be praying for a sick loved one. It could be dealing with um, difficulty in your own life or whatever it may be. There's, there's no shame at all. Come on forward. The altars are open, and we have a few people here to pray with you. Sure,